This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. In the Star Advertiser this morning, a military wife urged the Navy to replace the pipes and water heaters in the handful of homes where low levels of petroleum hydrocarbons were detected in October. It comes on the heels of a report by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, which pressed the Navy to do more to determine the source of contamination. Amy Miller is the head of the EPA's Enforcement and Compliance Assurance Division for Region 9 out of San Francisco. We talked to her about the trace levels that are cause for concern for families living in military housing. So in October, we had a first meeting with a community representation initiative. And one of the issues that was raised during the meeting was concerns of people continuing to have rashes in homes. And so we immediately sent an inspector out to talk to the residents to hear what concerns they may have and also to look at how the Navy was responding to complaints. So the inspection report does look at those concerns and the recommendations from the report ask that that the Navy do further review and look into if there are possibly some concerns within the premise plumbing that may be causing these people to have rashes. You know, because of the timing of this, it was when Joint Task Force, you know, was set to begin draining the tanks. And that's when these first reports started to come up. So we were trying to figure out if there was a connection there. And, and I know that the Navy says that, you know, they didn't believe that that was the cause. But yeah, if it's a water heater or some of the plumbing, the pipes, uh, you want to get to the root cause. That's right. We want to get to the root cause. We knew that the water co- going into the system was in compliance with the Safe Drinking Water Act and was also didn't have high levels didn't have any levels of total petroleum hydrocarbon. And so, uh, you know, the focus was to look and see if there was some other source that's causing this issue. In in addition to the drinking water investigation, throughout the defueling process, EPA had uh, staff on site while the Joint Task Force was defueling to observe and ensure that there were no leaks and spills during operation. Yes, and, and fortunately that uh, all went safely, but now the concern is, you know, where did these trace amounts come from, you know, in these half a dozen or so homes? And is there something more that the military can do? So part of, you know, returning the drinking water system to active use Uh, required the establishment of a long-term monitoring plan. This long-term monitoring plan requires the Navy to take samples to see if there is high levels of total petroleum hydrocarbons in the system and take steps to, to flush if there are levels that are high. Also, it requires them to follow up on any complaints. And so our investigation was to evaluate that process, and we made some recommendations that they needed to go a little bit further because there are still complaints with rashes and concerns, and so those need to be followed up on. And perhaps looking at the premise plumbing may may be a good place to, to do some analysis. And then have we made any headway, any progress with uh, lab testing capacity here? I mean, I know that was a a big concern with Red Hill, you know, having to send the samples back to the mainland and then waiting weeks for results. Yeah, so currently um, the lab tests are continue to be sent back to the mainland. We're more than willing to work with Department of Health and any laboratory that wants to increase their capacity. There is a process to go through to be able to do the type of analysis that is needed and get it uh, accredited to take those samples. And so far, we do not have a lab that's come forward to take on that responsibility. Is there some incentive, you know, that we can put out there to sweeten the pot, whether it's some kind of infrastructure money that could be set aside just because of, you know, the growing concern with forever chemicals turning up everywhere, you know, whether it's in wastewater or landfills or or drinking water, it it just seems that there's going to be more of a demand for that type of capacity. 
Yes, we're more than willing to work with Department of Health to think about strategies on how to improve access to labs on island. We are eager to to see an increase in lab support in Hawaii. Okay, so in the absence of the private sector stepping up, uh, meeting the requirements, then, yeah, what more can we done locally with the governments here? Yeah, um, so Department of Health is, you know, I I believe that they are are looking into this issue, and this is definitely uh, a, an a, an issue and topic that we have many conversations about how we can uh, get funding and investment to improve um, lab analysis. And is there anything more uh, on the horizon? I don't know how often the the Navy is testing the uh, five homes. Uh, is it on a weekly basis or monthly basis? So we asked the Navy on on these homes that uh, EPA inspectors visited to to do a thorough suite of sampling, but also to investigate the plumbing um, as well as uh, the water heaters to see if there's any source, any location where possibly um, there may be total petroleum hydrocarbons stuck within the system. Um, And I just want to stress again, these are very low levels, um, almost to the point of not being able to be detected. But part of the point of the long-term monitoring is to monitor. And if there are problems in the system, to further investigate and figure out what the root cause is and eliminate that cause. Okay. Uh, anything else that you folks are uh, focused on as we move into 2024? Well, in 2024, we are going to be very focused on um, removing the rest of the fuel um, and overseeing that. There's still fuel within the lines that the Joint Task Force and the new task force that the Navy will have will be looking to remove that fuel along with cleaning of the tanks and getting the tanks to closure. So that's going to be a a big focus. Another focus is uh, continuing our efforts with the Community Representation Initiative and working with the Navy on determining what the causes of these total petroleum hydrocarbon low-level samples are, you know, where they're coming from. As we just pause to reflect to see, you know, what has happened in a short period of time. You know, yes, we are fortunate that uh, the tanks were drained safely to this point, but it was brought to my attention that this marks 10 years since the last really big spill in 2014, and we're still not real clear as to where all that fuel landed, where it ended up. Yeah, there is a lot of work to be done on the restoration and remediation of groundwater and the land that has been contaminated with fuel. And we will be working with the Department of Health and, and others to come up with a plan to restore the water and the land that has been impacted. That was EPA Region 9 Enforcement Division Director Amy Miller talking with us from her office in San Francisco. Uh, We did check with the Navy Region Office this morning, but it could not say when results from any additional testing uh, are due back from the lab. The trace amounts of petroleum hydrocarbons found in four homes were below action levels. That level is 266 parts per billion. The residences had levels at 71 or below. There was no detection of oil or gasoline, which would link it to jet fuel that was formerly stored in the Red Hill underground tanks. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. 
today we're taking you on a drive about a half hour north of Lanai City to a beach named Kaiolohia, which translates to Calm Sea. However, anyone familiar with the area knows it by a different name, Shipwreck Beach. Stretching roughly eight miles, this section of Lanai coastline is known for its strong winds, powerful currents, and abundant reefs. As you might imagine from its name, the beach is also known for the large number of marine disasters in those treacherous waters. There are at least a dozen vessels known to have run aground there, from barges to steamships to schooners. To this day, there are still several shipwrecks visible from the shore. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're looking for the name of the first known vessel to have been lost to Lanai's Shipwreck Beach. Call 808-941-3689 or toll-free 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HPR. If you're lost at sea with this one, just wait and we'll throw you a line later in the show. This Saturday, HPR presents the Barton Niscala Duo live at the Atherton Studio. Watch this cello and piano duo perform works by Dvorak, Mahler, and Clara Schumann alongside newer pieces celebrating identity through music. For tickets and more information, visit hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for HPR comes from SMS Consulting, providing data-driven strategic planning and evaluation services to nonprofits, businesses, and government agencies in Hawaii. Learn more at smshawaii.com. wage in Hawaii is now up to $14 an hour as of January 1st. It's part of a multi-year schedule adopted to bring wages up in light of the high cost of living. We talked to the State Department of Labor and Industrial Relations this morning. Cheryl Lee is the administrator for the Wage Standards Division charged with enforcing the new labor laws that the legislature passed last year. Minimum wage was at 10.10 per hour, effective September 30th, 2022. Then it did increase to $12 per hour, effective October 1st, 2022, through December 31st, 2023. Now, currently, it is $14 per hour, which is effective January 1st, 2024. And I believe it was based on consumer price index was taken into um, a factor and also trying to keep up with inflation. I believe, was part of why they decided to increase the minimum wage. And this is a schedule that uh, lawmakers voted on and that we have adopted. So, you know, companies, businesses can plan for this. Correct. At the time, there was some pushback because some small businesses felt that, oh, gosh, if it goes up too fast, we may not be able to you know, sustain this. We're here to just enforce what was passed. It is going to increase in two years to $16 per hour, and then two years after that to 18 is what has been passed. And we have heard from advocates who believe it's long overdue that, yeah, you know, people just need to be making higher wages just because of the cost of living here in Hawaii. Correct. But, you know, minimum wage is not a living wage. So I think that is taken into factor also, but that is what the legislature came up with on increasing the minimum wage. The numbers that I saw that were out was that the new minimum wage affects like, oh, close to 22% of the workforce and would mean uh, roughly 
as far as a boost in the annual wages. That was uh, according to the Economic Policy Institute in D.C. But that doesn't sound like a whole lot, you know, (laughs) when you're trying to provide for your family and put food on the table. Because a lot of these jobs, you know, they're in restaurants and the service industries. Yes. Currently, Hawaii does not have the highest minimum wage also. I know Washington State, theirs is currently little over $16 per hour, and I believe California is $16 per hour. And we have seen labor shortage. Many businesses are already paying this amount or higher just to keep the employees that they do have. Correct. And so how do you uh, get the word out to, uh, to companies, to businesses? Our agency is just to enforce the minimum wage. We do have a website that does produce all the information that we enforce. Posters are required so that employees know that minimum wage has increased and what the future hourly minimum wage hourly will be increased to also. And when there is a infraction, if someone isn't paying that minimum wage or maybe isn't paying overtime, I think I think your department came out with a recent enforcement action against a business uh, that wasn't properly paying overtime for its workers. Correct. So if an employer is not paying the current minimum wage, then we will do an investigation on that employer. I understand that this also um, covers a tip credit. Yes. What do people need to know generally about that? So tipped employees may be paid $1.25 below the minimum wage, which is $12.75 if the employer takes a tip credit. Well, it's interesting because uh, I know recently uh, one thing that we've seen in in some establishments is that they will assess a charge to patrons, uh, not just to tip the front of the house, but also the back of the house. You know, those charges are then, you know, assessed to the patron. So if it's a service fee, um, the employer will need to notify customers that, what they're being charged is a service fee and not a tip, and how that service fee will di- be dispersed among the employees. Ah, so there's a distinction. Yes. And it has to specifically spell that out in the bill Correct. if you go to a restaurant? Or on their menu or somewhere in their facility. And that is just something that patrons need to be aware of so they aren't surprised at the end? Correct. And have you had any complaints about that? Not really. I don't recall any. A lot of employers just pay the minimum wage because there's a record-keeping requirement when the tip credit is taken. So I believe most employers just pay the minimum wage. Anything else that you you think would be important to underscore about this? Um, Just so that employers and employees are aware that the minimum wage did increase and also it's um, two-year increment, so it's 2026, January 1st, 2026, it'll increase to $16 an hour. And then January 1st, 2028, it'll be increased again to $18 per hour. And what's the process mm-hmm. if, let's say, a worker is not getting the minimum? Uh, how do they lodge a complaint? And then what's the penalty? We have a complaint form online, which they can fill out and submit. When that is processed, we will screen it, and then we'll do an investigation. And how long uh, does that uh, investigation normally take? So it depends. Once it gets assigned to an investigator, they will call the employer and do an investigation. And have we had complaints? Minimum wage complaints are very rare. Okay, because generally the businesses, the establishments, uh, want to follow the rules and Correct. and don't want to run afoul of state law. Correct. Yes. Okay. And, and and what is the penalty, though, if, if someone is found to be paying someone, or shorting someone? So if we find back wages are owed, the employer um, will just need to pay what we find. If they'll get cited that there was a minimum wage violation, if the employer does not pay the back wages that we find due, that case will be referred to the Attorney General's office, and we will see double the amount of the back wages that we have found. Again, you said that's that's pretty rare that it there is are rare. violations. Yes. Well, that's good that businesses are complying. Yes, uh, it applies to 
every employer. That was Cheryl Lee from the State Labor Department. She serves as the administrator for the Wage and Standards Division. She was talking about the hike in the minimum wage, which initially went from 10 to $12 and is now up to $14 as of January 1st, 2024. The next scheduled hike of $2 more is set for 2026, and then in 2028 it will rise to $18 an hour. Inflation is slowing, unemployment's low, and the Federal Reserve thinks we've probably avoided a recession. Is that good news? I don't think the economy is as good as it might appear. We got inflation. People are maxed out on their credit cards. Elders have no savings. I'm Deborah Becker. The Money Ladies will explain on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. An authorized demolition at a historic structure on Oahu's North Shore. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beach, Chad Blair on with us today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so this is a story uh, by your reporter, Kristen Downey, and uh, it it does a deep dive on the history of this uh, Marconi Telegraph site. Right, and and Kirsten and a photographer, uh, as well as a videographer, we've actually got some drone footage up on our story today. But it, this concerns the Marconi Telegraph site. It's a, an historic landmark, a national historic landmark, but the problem is it appears to have been gutted and, and is now roofless. It dates back to um, 1914. It's called a powerhouse. And back then, you know, this is right before World War II, uh, this telegraph powerhouse site was considered cutting edge communications. And, and Kirsten loves history. And the story is a great read just to, to read, uh, you know, what things were like back in the day uh, here on Oahu. The problem is, is that there was an agreement in 2021 uh, to preserve the historic structures uh, on this property. That does not appear to be the case. It appears to be a violation of this agreement of historic preservation rules and there are a lot of concerns complaints have been made to the government uh, by the way i should just say this is not the the first time there's been concerns about what's going on up in that area uh just late last year marcel honore was reporting on how uh, native vegetation and trees uh, an endangered bee habitat were be were being destroyed and the department of land and natural resources was looking into it but this is the latest development the marconi telegraph site yeah, it was named after an uh, Italian uh, engineer, <laughs> apparently. Yeah, the, a pretty famous name. I mm-hmm. think everybody knows it. The land used to be owned by Mackay Ranch. It was sold. It's about 100 acres, oceanfront property, uh, a zone for agriculture. But as the, the video and uh, photos uh, show, the, the plots have been divided up. Uh, there appear to be more than a dozen owners, um, trust LLCs, uh, and the concern is, at least clearly from the evidence, uh, it would seem to be that heavy construction is going on, not just demolition of the telegraph site. Um, and this has got a lot of historic preservation officials very upset. They've asked the DLNR, they've asked the attorney general to investigate. Uh, the AG didn't comment for Kirsten's story, but DLNR did get back. They couldn't comment but they, other than to say that there is an investigation going on to see what's going on here yeah and you know for folks who aren't familiar with the site it, it's near the turtle bay resort but right. it's um it's pretty kind of like secluded there's a lot of brush you can't really get up close to right it. you're not going to be able to get to it easily there there are gates it, it's difficult uh, it turns out that uh, the land was purchased by a las vegas tech entrepreneur uh, and it looks like it was for the price tag of about $10 million. Uh, Kirsten did manage to get a hold of an attorney 
uh, for this uh, this individual who says that really that what they plan to do is they intend to to rebuild that historic site that it was in danger of collapsing at least uh, the beams on the interior uh, and that is their goal uh, the attorney did say work has halted for now uh, and said that they have been in communication with government officials uh, here in the islands and another agency in the involved is DPP Department of Planning and Permitting they say they're monitoring the situation as well because uh, it does involve permits to be able to to work on this land. Yeah, and they were called out there, I think, initially, right. uh, and 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 did uh, serve them a notice of uh, violation and a stop work order. Right, and you know this is not a a, a, a news story in Hawaii in the sense that historic areas threaten development coming in that natural tension that exists between those who uh, well, those who want to make money, but also those who want to, to build housing and maybe um, other properties as well. And yet the importance of preserving Hawaii history at the time, and, and as I already mentioned, Kirsten really does go into to depth about what Hawaii was like, what Oahu was like at the time and how things have evolved. And, and this is why historic preservation officials are so concerned. They, you know, they feel like if, if you lose this part of the history, you're really losing something essential. Yeah, we need housing, we need more buildings, but we also need to preserve uh, these very beautiful locations. Like you said, right there near Turtle Bay, wonderful mm-hmm. place to be. Yeah, and there's a process. You know, you check with the right. uh, uh, historic preservation uh, division, the state offices, you know, to get the thumbs up. But yeah, we'll we'll see what happens. But th- thank yeah, you so much. And penalties if you violate those agreements too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. Uh, that was Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read Kirsten Downey's story on this issue at civilbeat.org. United, divided, well, Maui is moving into its fifth month trying to recover from the deadly wildfires. Now there's an effort to pull the community together in what's billed as a unity conference. HPR's Catherine Cluett-Pactel joins us this morning. Hi, Catherine. Good morning. Yeah, so tell us about this gathering. So it's the Ho'ulu Lahaina Unity Gathering, and it's organized by Uncle Archie Kalepo, who is a renowned waterman. He uh, from Lahaina. He was a Hokulea crew member uh, involved in ocean safety for years, safety and rescue. In the immediate hours after the wildfire, he opened his own home in Lealii, which is just outside the burn zone. Two fire survivors following, uh, you know, this, this devastating event. And he's been instrumental in creating uh, functioning community hubs that we saw across uh, Maui in the wake of the fire. He's now uh, inviting everyone, (laughs) not only from uh, across the state, but also across the country, to Lahaina for this unity event planned on January 20th by his nonprofit, Lele Aloha. This will be an opportunity for us to reflect on not only what we've come out of, what we've walked through, but our heading, our new direction, and how important it is for us to be unified. And maybe because of our everyday struggles, we truly don't recognize how unified we really are. This will give us the opportunity to walk with each other, to be with each other, and to realize that we are unified. This is unity in probably its greatest form because of the adversity that we've lived through. And the whole state has been watching. At one point, the whole world was watching. And so this is a chance, one chance maybe we have to bring everybody together from every island across the state of Hawaii to be invited to be here with us to show unity and support not only for Lahaina, but pave the way for the next seven generations for Hawaii. So this is really a gathering for healing, not a like a, a stuffy conference. I might have misspoke. It's not a conference. It's it's uh, it's just like a what a march and a gathering on the beach. It is. So it's it's actually a walk that starts at eight a.m. on Saturday, January twentieth, at the top of Lahaina Bypass Road, 
And that section of the the walk will honor the history, the places of significance in Lahaina, and the families of Lahaina who have been there for generations, uh, of course, rooted in Hawaiian cultural, cultural protocol, but also honoring the diversity and all the ethnicities that make Lahaina what it is. And uh, organizers are stressing that it's it's really about everybody that has, you know, come together over over hundreds of years to to create the Lahaina that we that we know and love. The walk ends at Laniapoko Beach, and there will be speeches and music and celebration. Um, and there's, you know. A whole bunch of logistics, of course, involved in organizing all of this. Maps and parking info and registration and all of the event details are available on lelealoha.org for folks who may be wanting to go over and join. And the Events Cultural Protocol Coordinator, or Lani Koa, talked about how the event is timed with this transition into phase two of recovery and giving residents really a moment to pause. Everybody's vision may be different of how we see the growth of Lahaina, but really going from phase one where we really see, you know, Uncle Archie come in and raise up these hubs and bring in survival mode pretty much and bring in necessities of our people to just even survive and breathe to this next phases of getting people into a place in a home. How do we get them back to their land? Growth that we need from every community that we've seen that's come forward from government entities, small businesses, big businesses, community leaders, cultural leaders, you know, the everyday person, the Haina. And so this event really is a combination of all that that really helps our people to look to the right and look to the left. And we're still here. We're still encouraged. Yes, you know, when, when there is growth, there is definite growing pains. The end result of what Lahaina will be is the result of all the hard work that is taking place now. So just being able to take time for everybody to stop and to breathe, to take in these moments, the place, you know, the work that's been put in, that really also is a time for us to reflect of how far we've come. And yes, there's a lot more work to do, but we are very vested in it. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, very timely. New year, uh, lots of challenges ahead, but, you know, I guess just really trying to get the community to pull together uh, just so that Maui can heal and, and, you know, get back on its feet. Absolutely. And Archie Kalepa talked about really not this not only being about Lahaina, but about the whole state of Hawaii and resetting, re-charting uh, the direction that we want to go in. You know, all of the themes that we've seen in Lahaina are themes that are not new to the state. Um, and he really talked about how it, it, it ties into all of that. He emphasized that this kind of event has never happened. Uh, you know, the fire has never happened before on this on this scale that we saw in Lahaina. You know, there's there's limited resources uh, in Hawaii as a state, uh, and and all of that takes time. He actually praised government action that has been taken so far. He says that there's a lot of learning that government has has done, and says that they're doing everything they can with the resources that they have. He was actually very supportive of of the progress that's been happening so far uh, since the fire. And he says today's culture is is a culture of instant results, right? You know, he said our cell phones are, everything is just at, you know, at the snap of a finger. But he said recovery is a marathon. It doesn't happen overnight. And so, again, taking that time to recognize the progress that has been made and looking forward, he, Kalepa talks about Lahaina in the context of Hawaii's history. There's been some monumental things that has happened in my lifetime, from 1976 when Hokulea successfully celestially navigated to and from Tahiti. It was a time when we were looking for our identity, and that happened. Through that, there's been a big revival of hula language, culture. Then Mauna Kea happened. It was a chance to take a stand. This, Lahaina, what's happened, gives us a clean page to rebuilding what I think all of us in Hawaii have been wishing for for a long time, what all of us in Hawaii have been having, whether it be a garage party or discussion about the direction Hawaii has been heading in. We have a chance to change that narrative, and I want to put it in terms of navigation. I want to put it in terms of voyaging, is change our compass, 
change are heading for not just a new horizon, but a horizon that we've been familiar with for a very long time. Our hope as a community that we can hold that torch to shine the light in the dark for the new heading of this canoe for Hawaii. That's our hope. That's our ask. So join us. Be with us. This is an invitation to the people of Hawaii across the United States and around the world. Come and be with us on January 20th. Walk with us. See what happened. Think about what we can do and how we're going to do it. That sounds like a pretty powerful event. Are you planning on being there? I will be, for sure. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's going to be a, a pretty big event. I, I don't know all of all of the folks that are planning to attend, but it sounds like on the level of thousands across the state, for sure. And he's talking of, you know, inviting everyone to bring their, their poo, their conch shells to blow. Uh, so, you know, even just the image of, of hundreds of conch shells blowing at one time is it, really powerful. So I think it, it should be... Uh, a very noteworthy event following the fire. Yeah, I mean, not everybody agrees on, you know, how best uh, to, you know, move forward, you know, where to site the landfill, that kind of thing. But, yeah, definitely a, a, a healing event that's planned. But thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. That was Catherine Clowett pactel talking to us this morning about an upcoming unity gathering planned by community leader Archie Kalepa. Uh, you can read the story at our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. <music> is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute. University of Hawaii Biology Professor Patrick Hart brings us the song of the modest alavi, or the Hawaii creeper. This little bird works with other honey creepers to protect its chicks from predators like the Hawaiian hawk. The alavi, also known as the Hawaii creeper, is a small, fairly inconspicuous Hawaiian honeycreeper that's often been overlooked compared to many of its showier honeycreeper cousins. Even its Hawaiian name of Alavi was only recently rediscovered when a graduate student at UH Hilo found reference to it in an old Hawaiian language newspaper from over a century ago. Only about four and a half inches long, Alavi have mostly olive green or grayish plumage that bird watchers often confuse with other birds like female amakihi. What really sets them apart is their dark grayish colored mask, or lores, that extends from the base of their bill to around their eyes. Also, their bill is much straighter than the slightly curved bill of the amakihi. While they might be hard to find with binoculars, listening for the very conspicuous, descending trill of the males is often the best way to find an alavi. They're also known as creepers because they forage for food by creeping up and down branches and tree trunks, using their straight bill to probe in the crevices of bark in search of insects to eat. They can often be found in the same tree as one of their close cousins, the bright orange Hawaii akepa, which is also an insectivore. While these two birds have similar diets, they share their resources by dividing up where they forage on the tree with the akepa spending most of their time in the leaves on the tips of branches, and the alavi mostly on the trunk. Alavi usually build cup nests in the branches of ohia trees, and by May or June, their one or two keiki leave the nest. For the next few months, these keiki noisily follow their parents around the forest begging for food as they are learning to better forage for themselves. This constant begging makes them easy targets for their main predator, the eo, or Hawaiian hawk. To help protect their noisy babies, alavi get together in large mixed species flocks with other native birds in the forest, like akepa, amakihi, and akiapolaau. They're also feeding their fledglings around that time. As many as 200 birds can make up these flocks, which can be quite a sight to see as they slowly move among the trees. With only about 12,000 individuals remaining, 
Olivae are a state and federally listed endangered bird species that is found mainly in Ohia and Koa forests on the island of Hawaii. Like most other Hawaiian honeycreepers, mosquito-transmitted avian malaria is their greatest threat, which is why they're currently only found at high elevations on Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa volcanoes, where it's too cold for mosquitoes and the malaria parasites to live. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Evergreen by Deborah, providing tile, mosaic murals, and planters for 30 years. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about hydroflow permeable pavers designed to absorb rainwater and reduce runoff. navigate to the answer to today's backyard quiz. Earlier in the show, we took you to Lanai to visit the treacherous shipwreck beach. The infamous stretch of coastline is only accessible on foot or by four-wheel drive vehicle. And while it's not so friendly to the average swimmer because of its notoriously fierce winds, strong currents, and large reefs, it does provide incredible views of the Kalohi Channel and the island of Molokai. When standing on shore and taking in the views, you'd probably find it easy to understand why people call it Shipwreck Beach. To this day, the remains of ships lost to sea uh, to this area are still visible, the most notable being the gigantic U.S. Navy World War II-era fuel tanker made out of steel and concrete that sits wedged into a section of reef. It is one of two Navy vessels that were intentionally grounded in waters off Lanai. The first ship to be swallowed by the waters near Shipwreck Beach was the British vessel Alderman Wood in the year 1824, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz, but nobody got it. If you have an idea for a quiz that you'd like to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Honolulu Magazine recently named its five books local authors couldn't get enough of in 2023. Among them is Megan uh, Kamalei Kakimoto's debut book, Every Drop is a Man's Nightmare. It's a short story collection that explores Native Hawaiian myth, love, and family. Kakimoto is of Hawaiian and Japanese descent and grew up on Oahu. She's received fellowships from several literary organizations, and her fiction has been featured in several publications. She talked to former HPR producer Stephanie Hahn this past September about writing through a feminist lens. I set out with these stories writing only women protagonists at very, you know, different places in their life, different stages of their life. I was just noticing all these threads, these common threads that were popping up in in different stories that sort of kept asserting themselves to me and my interest early on before I even thought of this as a collection but just as I was writing stories was being able to write into a woman character in her body what it looks like what it what it feels like to be in a body and to possess a body in a world that's not always welcoming or accommodating of your body and I think writing these women felt like an opportunity to be very fearless to sort of track them as they live their lives. Don't always make the right choices. They don't have to do the right thing or, you know, behave a certain way in accordance to what society expects of them or wants of them. I think there's a joy in representing women and the full range of their humanity. And when women in these stories kind of chose kindness and compassion for each other and for their bodies and their world were were just as enjoyable for me to write as you know the moments when they were a little messy and and made the wrong choice and as a writer and as a reader I really gravitate towards stories that offer all characters but especially the women characters the space to 
be as human as they need to be. So that was, I think, a commitment for me in writing each of these stories. You speak to a local audience. You speak to a woman of Hawaiian descent experience, but you're also half Japanese. And so how does this figure into your construction of womanhood? Is there a difference? What's the same? A lot of it is citing a matrilineal narrative, the knowledge that comes from your matriarchal line. But is there anything about womanhood that also comes potentially from your patriarchal line? Like you mentioned, my my Japanese side is on my father's side, and I am incredibly close to that side of my family as well. I think a lot of what I've encountered or wrestled with in some ways has been a pressure or a stress to sort of make sure that I'm not telling quiet stories or not being too quiet, that I'm able to tell these stories in the truest way that I can and that I know how to. I think that there's elements of growing up half Japanese and sort of with my Japanese family that is a little on the quieter side, on the private side. One of the most freeing things about writing is that you can write into whatever character you want to write into. There's a safety there, I think, in being able to tell a story. I guess for zooming out a little bit, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a people pleaser in my daily life pretty significantly. But when I'm writing a story, my character does not need to be a people pleaser, and they can be really sort of feisty or, um, you know, they can not give a damn about what they are or how they, how they behave with other characters. And, and I think there's just a lot of freedom in, in being able to take comfort in the page that way and tell those sorts of stories, especially when, you know, you consider maybe the context of the cultural expectation of being a little more on the private or quiet or meeker side. Right now, there's a lot of discussion about indigenous women's knowledge in particular and how they're leading a discussion about the environment. What elements of women's knowledge and wisdom do you think are important that people should pay attention to? What is it, if we're in leadership positions, might potentially be different for our world? I guess I can only speak to my own like personal experience as being a woman. I think that I see a lot of really sort of attending to compassion in my own community of of women friends and women family members. I think leading with compassion has been you know kind of it has been very important to me in my own life and also having an eye for empathy. I feel like I get both when I am in community with my women friends. And I feel like that's very top of mind for a lot of women in my life and and for me as well. And I think that those are two, really two things that would make the whole world better, but especially in in politics today and in so much that's going on right now just lending that eye toward compassion and having sort of an awareness of other people. And, you know, when I say empathy, I don't at all mean to, you know, make excuses for anyone else or anyone's bad behavior. I think it's more just taking the opportunity to regard where that person is coming from, what experiences they're bringing to their own, you know, opinion or their own actions. And I guess just, yeah, having having that be top of mind. What was your biggest struggle with writing that you feel that you overcame while writing this book as a writer, you know, sort of a writerly piece of advice that you might give to aspiring writers out there? I don't even know if I've overcome it yet, but I think it's a process of constantly overcoming, but not being silenced by the fear of, you know, there's so much fear in in writing and putting any piece of writing out into the world. But I think 
an indigenous Hawaiian story collection that has a feminist spin. You know, I think that there's a lot of fear in how these stories will be received, even down to the title. You know, every drop is a man's nightmare. I've had someone ask me if I worried about alienating male readers from the title. And I mean, my honest answer is no. (laughs) Um, But I think just at the same time, there is just a lot of there's always a lot of fear. And I had a lot of a lot of anxiety in terms of, in particular, writing these cultural narratives because there is an incredible amount of pressure from, I think, anyone in a marginalized experience to do right by their community because there's so few of us getting published, there's so few of us having our work championed, and there's that pressure to get things right and to you know, do right by by the Hawaiian community. I am constantly thinking about that and also trying very hard not to worry about that because at the end of the day, there's only, I can only write into my own experience and there is no single monolithic Hawaiian cultural experience that I can ever accurately represent. So I think trying to pay attention to my own experiences and to have the confidence in in putting these stories out and really try not to worry about how they're going to be received because ultimately I needed to write the stories and that has been done. (laughs) Again, it is also very much a, a learning, ongoing learning process for me. Thank you so much for coming by. Really appreciate it. I think that any listener out there would really enjoy this book. It's a fantastic collection. Thank, Thank you. you so much. That was Megan Kamale Kakimoto, author of the short story collection titled Every Drop is a Man's Nightmare. We have to go now. We are all out of time. Got a story idea you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find our archive shows online by searching for The Conversation on our website or at your favorite podcast store. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. <laughs>